Hello. Hello. Um. How was your week? We have a couple of announcements. Now we can officially announce that we now have a Twitter and an Instagram. Yes. Um, I put them in the description for the last episode, but while we were recording, it kind of cut that off. I don't really know why it did that. Um, sound systems are tricky. But, yeah, we're still figuring all of that out. However, um, you can follow our Twitter and our Instagram. They both have the same handle, at crime underscore cryptid. Um, and, I'll, again, I'll put that in the description for this episode as well. Yay, we have socials. Yes. And if you want to do a even bigger favor, why don't you follow and rate our wonderful podcast? Yes, that would benefit um, us very, very much. If you like the podcast, please follow, rate, um, share it with your friends. Maybe not your family, unless you know them like that. <laughs> unless they're into that type of stuff. But maybe be selective. Choose Choose the right people. Choose the people you like. Choose the people you think will also like us. It's not. I mean, send it to your enemies too. It's cool. Oh yeah. <laughs> Here you go. Have this. Yeah. But yes. So we'll always have the the weekly updates. The newest episode will always be posted uh, onto both the Twitter and the Instagram for easy access. Um, but yeah, like, follow, rate. So we have that now. We have socials. We're real podcasters now. We have social accounts. The Instagram got shut down for like a solid couple of hours. Well, apparently that happened to almost everyone. So. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't happen to my private account, thankfully. It didn't happen to mine either, but I think it happened to like a lot of smaller accounts. That happened. A lot happened over the week. There was Halloween. Halloween parties. A lot of stuff happened in the world, but... Yeah. As it is... <laughs> It's never never a dull moment around here anymore, but... Okay. Anymore, it's... Anymore. <laughs> the world has been in crisis for, like, three years. Yeah, but there was a point where you were like, okay, it's kind of the routine. It's still there. It's been the routine. <laughs> but then there's, like, dashes tossed in there. It's, like, the sprinkles on top every occasional Yeah. Moment. But, all right. So there's our announcements. There's our little chit-chat at the beginning. Should we get into this? Because mine's pretty pretty long this time. Is it? It is. Mine's pretty short, but that works. That actually works out pretty great. I think it does. Okay. So I have the criminal, technically the crime, mm -hmm. uh, this time. And I'm going into, have you ever heard about Germany's Girl in the Box? Germany's girl in the box. Yeah. So there are multiple women in boxes. Yes. Within the world. Yes. That's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, on September 15th, 1981, 10-year-old Ursula Herman headed back home by bike from her cousin's house, but she never arrived. That name sounds so familiar. You probably have seen it. There are I, thousands of documents and hundreds of books because it is literally, it's one of the most shocking uh, kidnapping crime cases in Germany. It, it sounds like I might have, like, heard it from, like, My Favorite Murder or, I don't know, I listen to, like, seven different murder podcasts. Yeah, so. I do too. So. I think it popped up on My Favorite Murder at one point, actually. So Seems like something Karen Kilgariff would do. Yep. So, yeah, it's... It's one of Germany's most notorious post-war criminal cases, and it still remains contentious to this day. So, in the Alpine foothills in the far south of Germany is a vast lake called the Amasee. Its shores are dotted with century-old villages where wealthy families from Munich buy large second homes and tourists drink beers and waterfronts restaurants, you know. A lot of a lot, a lot like Tegernsee. Um, it's Tegernsee. Tegernsee, my bad. At the north end of the lake is a pair of such villages, Etching, the Amasee, and Schondorf, less than two miles apart. Separating them is a block of spruce forests that attract hunters, joggers, mountain bikes, and in the late summer, 38 years ago, kidnappers. Like, this was like a problem that people were getting kidnapped? Yeah. Because <laughs> okay. it was just like a wide forest area between two small towns uh, filled with rich people. So... So after class on Tuesday, the 15th of September, 1981, 
the first day of the new school year, a 10-year-old girl named Ursula Herman returned to her house in Ecking, and Ursula, the youngest of four siblings, practiced piano with her oldest brother Michael and then headed off in the late afternoon to a gymnastics lesson in Schondorf, cycling through the forest along the lakeside path. When the gym class was over, she went to her cousin's house in Schondorf, where she ate dinner. And at 7.20, Ursula's mother phoned the aunt to say that her daughter was needed to come home, and the shadows were lengthened, but it was still light and the cycle ride would only take like 10 minutes. Half an hour later, she still wasn't home. Her mother called again, uh, and the aunt said that Ursula had left, had left 25 minutes before that phone call. Both of them immediately knew something was wrong, and Ursula's father rushed to the forest from Ecking, and her uncle did the same from Schondorf. They met in the middle along the path, and Ursula's name rang out through the darkening woods like they were like screaming it, trying to find mm-hmm. her. Uh, but obviously, there was no reply. Within hours, neighbors, police, and firemen had all joined had all joined the the search torches beamings raking the waters and struggling to penetrate the thick undergrowth of the forest with midnight approaching and rain falling a sniffer dog led its handler away from the lake into the brush there 20 meters from the path was ursula's red bike and she was nowhere to be seen i wonder if um that sounds a lot like the first disappearance in the show dark yeah it does a little bit so at first light the next day, uh, the search intensified, so dozens of officer officers wearing raincoats and rubber boots spread out through the dense forest on the borders of which stands Landheim Schondorf, an expensive private school founded in 1905 and favored by Bavaria's politi- political and business elite. I totally butchered that word. So... The local radio carried the shocking news of a missing girl in an idyllic part of the county at 143, like, she's roughly four foot seven, um, with short blonde hair, wearing dark green cords, a gray woolen cardigan, brown sandals, the daughter of a teacher and a housewife, blah, blah, blah. So they put out basically an amber alert for her. Um... On Thursday morning, when Ursula had been missing for more than 36 hours, the phone rang in the Herman house. When Ursula's parents picked up the phone, there was silence, and then a short, familiar jingle, which they recognized from the traffic bulletin on the Bayern Dry radio station. More silence ensued, and then the jingle played again before the caller hung up. Three more similar calls, baffling and sinister (laughs) followed over a period of hours so like there were multiple calls and it was just this little radio jingle in the background followed by silence like the dude was listening to the radio and he just like called every time they decided to do the jingle yeah that's fucking weird (laughs) a team from the local police department now stationed inside the herman home began recording the calls at noon the next day the postman delivered an envelope addressed to ursula's father marked as urgent Inside was a ransom note, composed using letters and words cut out from a tabloid newspaper. The letter read, We kidnapped your daughter. If you ever want to see your daughter alive, then pay two million Deutschmarks for ransom. The kidnappers, expecting the letter to have arrived a day earlier before the calls began, explained that they would phone the Hermans using a jingle as their call sign. Just say if you will pay or not pay. And if you call the police who do not pay, we will kill your daughter. So the letter came a day late. Wow. <laughs> um, so when the phone rang later that afternoon, the jingle sounded and Ursula's mother agreed to pay the ransom. She also asked for proof of life. Uh, what were her daughter's nicknames for her two, her two stuffed toys uh-huh. as, like, her proof. And when the kidnappers did not reply, she became frantic, screaming, talk to me, say something, something from Ursula. Uh-huh. That same evening, the kidnappers posted a second letter, which arrived on Monday, the 21st of September, with curiously specific instructions regarding the ransom. The kidnappers wanted the money to be paid in used... $100 Deutschmark bills, packed in a suitcase, and it was to be delivered to an, at the time, unnamed location by Ursula's father, who was to only drive in a yellow Fiat going 
no faster than nine kilometers an hour. Very specific. Why would... Did they own a yellow Fiat? I, I don't know, honestly. Because <laughs> it didn't say. It was just like they required that it had to be a yellow Fiat. And it was like... Sounds like a setup just to murder her. Yeah. Like an extremely long one. So unlike some of the other residents of Ecking and the parents of the pupils at the boarding school in Schildorf, the Hermans were actually not very wealthy. They had only been able to build a home near the lake because of Ursula's great-grandfather had purchased some land there way before. A neighbor raised part of the ransom and the state agreed to cover the rest. Mm-hmm. So the Hermans waited for more instructions, but there were no more letters and no more phone calls, nor did the police have any strong leads. Two weeks ended up passing. The police decided to search the forest again. More than a hundred officers were assembled with ten sniffer dogs. The wood was divided into four parts and each quarter into a small grid. The teams began searching every grid one by one using metal robs to probe the ground. By the fourth day of searching, a gloomy Sunday, they had covered most of the forest. Ursula, at this point, had been missing for over 19 days. At 9.30 a.m., there was a loud shout. In a tiny glade about 800 meters away from the lake path, one of the officers had struck something solid when probing the soil. Another policeman rushed over, and after wiping away the leaves and scraping through the layers of clay, they discovered a brown blanket covering a wooden board. He removed it, only to find another board, which appeared to be the lid of a box. It was 72 centimeters by 60 centimeters, the size of a small coffee table. Painted green and locked from the top with seven sliding bolts. Using a spade, he forced the lid open and peered in. And that's where they found Ursula's cold, lifeless body. The officers reportedly were crying when they lifted her out. I mean, understandable. Yeah. I actually have a... they So they actually reconstructed an image of basically what the box looked like. Would you like to see it? Sure. Oh my god. Yeah. It was tiny. So she was stuffed in it? Mm-hmm. I don't like the figure that they used for that. No, I don't like it either. Yeah, they stuffed her in that there. That is a weird-looking box. It is. But it's it literally kind of complicated would... of a box to just to put a body in. Not gonna lie. Just to put a, a little kid in. Two detectives were sent to break the news to Ursula's parents at their home, which was a short walk away. While her mother was too distraught to be asked any questions, her father asked repeatedly, had his daughter been hurt before her death? The truthful answer was no, she had not. An autopsy concluded that Ursula died within 30 minutes to five hours of being being buried. So she was dead long before they even sent the ransom. Wow. Um, There was no sign of a struggle or even really movement inside the box. The doctors assumed that she had been drugged beforehand, possibly with nitrous oxide. Mm -hmm. So it appeared that the kidnappers had planned to keep Ursula alive. The box was about 1.40 meters deep. It was fitted with a shelf and a seat that doubled as a toilet, like what you saw in the image. Um, It was stocked with three bottles of water, 12 cans of Fanta, six large chocolate bars, four packets of biscuits, and two packs of chewing gum. It also contained a small, bizarre library of 21 books from Donald Duck comics to old westerns, romance novels, and thrillers with titles such as The Horror Lurks Everywhere. Why would why would they just put all that shit in there? They wanted to her? keep her alive and keep her entertained, I guess. While she's in there. While well, they put her dead body in there. Yeah. So there was a light also and a portable radio tuned to Bayern Drei radio station. The same station that was that broadcast the traffic jingle. To enable Ursula to breathe, the box had a ventilation system made from plastic plumbing pipes, which extended to ground level, but whoever designed it obviously had failed to realize that without a machine to circulate the air, the oxygen would run out. 
So they did intend for her, they intended for her to live in the box? Yeah, they intended to keep her alive in the box, but they just, they didn't understand engineering and didn't realize that the, if there's no air circulation, it's just gonna, the oxygen's just gonna eventually become This is such a stupid fucking person. Yeah, so she literally suffocated. Love to see that. Um, That sucks. The police believed they were hunting more than one kidnapper because of the size and the weight of the box. At 60 kilograms, it would probably have needed at least two people to carry it into the woods. The perpetrators must have known the forest well because they had chosen a remote site and had avoided attention while digging the hole and hacking past through the dense brush to put the box in to put the girl in. So, in Ecking and nearby villages, parents who had previously let their children roam free were now terrified to let them out of their sight. Reasonably so. The shock was amplified by the frenzied press coverage. On the day of the funeral, after much harassment from from journalists, Ursula's brother Michael, a shy 18-year-old, lost his temper with a photographer who held a camera right in front of his face and knocked the camera to the ground. What year was this? This was the 80s. Oh, yeah, there was no, um, at that time, like, worldwide, there was no press. There was, like, no press regulation. Yeah. Yeah. So, desperate to find the culprits, the police offered a 30,000 Deutschmark reward for information and tips poured in. One name that came up was Werner Masrich. He was 31, lived with his wife and their two children just a few hundred meters away from the Hermans. A trained car mechanic who left school at 15 and now ran his own TV repair business. Masaryk was good with his hands. He was imposingly tall with <laughs> with, a, <laughs> with a beer belly and quick-tempered and not well-liked in Ecking. He was also heavily in debt, owing the bank more than... 140,000 marks. So he had a motive. But then why would he ask for 200 million? I honestly, I don't know. Spending room. But if he was like if he was handy, why would he make such a shitty box? Yeah, that was my question too. Was so, it him? We'll find out. Oh, okay. Questioned by police a week after Ursula's body was found, Masaryk could not initially recall his movements on the night that she went missing. It took him 24 hours to to provide an alibi. He'd been playing the board game Risk with his wife and two friends, but a search of his home and workshop workshop revealed nothing that linked him to the crime. So, later that month, the forensics team examining the box found a fingerprint on a piece of duct tape. Raising hopes of a breakthrough, thousands of locals, including Masaryk, were fingerprinted, but no matches were ever discovered. The police still suspected that Masaryk was involved. At the end of January 1982, they arrested him along with two of his friends and interrogated them for several days before releasing them. A month later, another of Masaryk's acquaintances was questioned. Klaus Flaffinger was an unemployed mechanic with a drinking problem. His landlord, who was owed rent, had told police that in the weeks before the crime, he had seen his tenant driving his moped with a spade strapped to the side. Falfinger initially protested his his innocence, but on the second day of questioning, when the interrogators took a break and he was alone with the police secretary, he started saying things like, what if I know something? When the interrogators returned, Fafinger told them that Mazurek had asked him to dig a hole in the forest in early September 1981, promising a payment of 1,000 Deutschmarks and a colored television. Falfinger said that he had dug the hole and had later seen a box embedded inside. Convinced they had cracked the case, the detectives drove Falfinger to the forest that separated Ecking and Schondorf. Or Schondorf. My god. Schondorf. They asked him to lead them to the burial sites, and to their dismay, he was unable to locate it or even come close. On returning to the police station, he announced, I am revoking this confession. It is not what I said. During at least ten subsequent interrogations in the following months, he refused to repeat his confession and was eventually released without charge. 
So by the summer of 1982, Masaryk was preparing to move away from Ecking with his family thanks to all of the name smearing. The lead detective who had pursued him was replaced, and the net cast more widely. Some 100,000 color posters requesting help with the investigation were, distribu- were distributed nationwide. A television program, Aktenzeichen XY, Ungelost, case number XY unsolved, uh, which we've gone over that a couple of times already in some of the German cases. That was like the go-to yeah. crime stoppers, basically. It's on, um, I believe it's on Netflix, or mm. it used to be. I think so. I think it's I think it's still on there. I, th- I could have sworn that I saw it, but yeah. Which would eventually serve as model for BBC's Crime Watch and America's Most Wanted. Wow. So it featured a long sentiment on the Ursula Herman case. Um, the news police team, the new police team, found more evidence of the kidnappers' methods, including a wire that they had strung through the trees alongside the lakeside path to serve as an alert system during the abduction. But investigations of other suspects came to nothing. By the end of the 1980s, the investigation had worn down. Across Germany, most people still remembered the shocking shocking unsolved case of the 10-year-old girl buried alive in the box. Ursula's parents and siblings, meanwhile, were doing their best to try and move on with their lives. Though they grieved deeply for Ursula, who they remembered as an intelligent, energetic girl who loved to sing and paint, they did so in private, never speaking to the press. Soon after their youngest child's death, the parents had made a conscious decision to not let the hunt for the kidnappers consume the family or the tragedy divine divine their lives. Or let the tragedy define their lives. Without any known perpetrators to blame, they tried to think of it as a accident. It reportedly was hardest for Ursula's mother, who believed that she should have gone to fetch her daughter from her cousin's house, not let her ride alone. Ursula's father and sister turned to their strong Christian faith to find peace, and her youngest brother eventually found solace in surfing. So, Michael... The elder brother. Mm-hmm. He was in his final year of school by the time of the crime and was playing music at a friend's house on the night Ursula disappeared. When his mother called in a panic saying his little sister was missing, he rushed home and joined the search for her forest. He was devastated when her body was found. And he decided that he is alive and he has to do something. So he continued the search quietly. Fast forward, in the mid-2000s, a Bavarian state officer for criminal investigation started looking at, started looking in earnest at its backlogging of cold cases. The most famous, obviously, was Ursula Herming's kidnapping, which had appeared more than three times on case numbers XY unsolved, and was still a stain on the reputation of the local police and judici- judiciary. Prosecutors hoped that the development of DNA profiling over the previous two decades might be able to help crack the case. The mass of evidence that was from the original investigation, including the ransom note, the box, was painstakingly re-examined. Like, they mm-hmm. went in with, like, a fine-tooth comb. Numerous hairs were found, um, from which the forensic experts were able to build a DNA profile of several, of several different people. Now, they just needed to get a match. And in 2007, they got one. Nice. A genetic sample recovered from a screw on the box matched that found on a glass in the München penthouse of a wealthy woman who was brutally murdered there in May 2006. So a genetic sample recovered from a screw in the box matched one that was on the glass. Yeah, so he previously committed a crime. But the the police excite meant about a breakthrough was short-lived. On trial for the Munich killing was the victim's nephew, who was only a few years old when Ursula was kidnapped. After extensive forensic investigations, the judges ruled that no link could be established between the two criminal cases, and the nephew was convicted for the Munich murder. However, the match with the sample from the Herman case occurred remains a mystery, though very rarely do though very rare mistakes do occur in genetic profiling. For the prosecutors looking into the Herman case, time was running out. Her death had not been deemed a murder, but rather a kidnapping with deadly consequences. 
a crime that had carried a 30-year statute of limitations. In five years, the people responsible would be clear. So they were really running out of time. The Uh, state... hmm. That's murder. Yeah. Or maybe manslaughter. Kidnapping with manslaughter. But, like, they did kill her. Yeah. The problem with it, I think, is because there wasn't an intention to kill. It was just, like, a consequence that happened of it. Because there was so much evidence that they wanted to keep her alive. But she still died, so I'm like, yeah, so and they murder's still there. Yeah, and they her. They threatened to kill her. They did. There was attempted murder. It technically could be stacked on there. But they didn't do that. So they only had a 30-year statute of limitations, and they only had five years to figure it out before it, it would be pointless. Jesus. So... The state prosecutors went back to the 1980s case files to look for to look at the main suspects. Klaus Flappinger, the unemployed man who had briefly claimed to have dug the hole, was dead. But Werner Mauserich was still alive and living with his wife in the north of Germany, where he ran a boat accessories business, and with a friend on Tuesday evenings, a snack bar that bore the advertising slogan, Norbert's Pig and Werner's Beer, the finest at the Harbor Pier. I like that. So in 2007, Masaryk was placed under surveillance and an undercover officer deployed to befriend him. Police planted recording devices in his car, in his house, and tapped his house. Um, or tapped his phone. My goodness. In October that year, his home was searched and he was asked to provide a saliva sample. It didn't match any of the genetic profiles found to be in the box. The prosecutors had one hope left. Among the items taken from Masaryk's home during the search was an old reel-to-reel tape recorder. In the calls to Ursula's parents in the days after her disappearance, the kidnappers had played the jingle, the radio Mm -hmm. jingle. And so they wondered if this device was maybe what it was recorded on. So a sound expert who had access to the original recordings of the 1981 calls, spent months conducting tests on the tape recorder, concluding that it was indeed used in the kidnapping. Oh. On the 28th of May, 2008, nearly 27 years after Ursula's death, Masaryk was arrested and flown to Augsburg, a city near Ecking. Ursula's parents, who were still living in the same house by the embassy, had been notified a few days before that an arrest was imminent. They were also told that they could be part of the trial. Under the German legal system, relatives of the victims of certain serious crimes are allowed to formally join in prosecution as Nebenklage, or co-plaintiffs. This gives them the right to view the evidence, request witnesses, and put questions to the judge. So they got to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they so didn't. They, oh, okay. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> Sorry, Ursula's parents did not want to be confronted again with the horrifying details of their daughter's death. So all these years later, instead, it was agreed that the clo- the co-plaintiff, plaintiff, would be Michael, the oldest son, uh, who was by then in his forties, teaching religion and music at a girls' secondary school in Augsburg. He was a quiet family man, but also one that was not content with half truths. As his old friend Michael Hofstetter who was with him in Ecking during the evening Ursula disappeared recently, told the Sunden Deutsche Zeitung newspaper, he had such a deep sense of justice and it drives him. The trial. Mm-hmm. The trial opened in February 2009 before a packed court in Augsburg. Masaryk, char- characterized in one of the newspapers as a bearded giant, sat in front of his wife, who was also on trial, as an accessory to the crime. Oh. Reading from a 20-page statement, Masaryk insisted that he was innocent, stating, I know I was certainly not a good citizen, sometimes rude, and will see many attempts to portray me as a bad person, but I have nothing to do with this act. The prosecution had no difficulty finding evidence of his poor character. (laughs) Masaryk's daughter and stepson had a few good things to say about him as a father. Uh, He had also a couple of scrapes with the law including a fraud conviction in 2004 for falsifying documents. Then there was the story about the dog. Did he kill someone's dog? <laughs> um, in 1974, Mazark returned from the Oktoberfest beer festival to find that the family dog, a mixed breed named Susie, 
had overturned the rubbish bin in the, in the kitchen. Mazert grabbed the dog and locked it in the basement freezer. In the freezer? In the freezer. He froze the dog? Yeah, and the next day his wife at the time, who would divorce him not long after this, yeah, no shit. Uh, went to the freezer to get meat only to find Susie there frozen to death. So he what the froze the fuck? Yeah, that's what I said. I was like, bro. Who put, like, she overturned a trash bin? Yeah, she knocked over a trash can. You know how many times are like, especially mine, has knocked over the trash? Pi doesn't, because he's, he's gentle. But Pompey has knocked over my shit so many times before. That's just what they do. I'm pretty sure Poppy tried to knock over my TV yesterday. Probably. I saw claw marks on the screen. <laughs> Like, it didn't break, but, like... She probably was pawing at something it. on the TV and didn't realize. Um, Mazurk, by the way, on the dog, Mazurk later said that he'd punished the pet with exile to Serbia. So you didn't see anything wrong with it. He was like, yeah, it's a fitting punishment. You killed no, the dog. No, not. You killed the dog. Okay. Yeah, no, he sounds like a fucking psycho. You're willing to That's just... Always- that's always the first clue. Did they hurt animals? Well, especially if they're like, oh yeah, throwing the dog in the freezer and letting it freeze to death, a slow death, is like, reasonable. They're, mm. they're fucking insane. The prosecution laid out the circumstantial evidence against Masaryk. Uh He had a motive because he needed the money, uh, and he had the means to secretly build a box because he owned a workshop. While Ursula was missing, he had been observed listening to the police radio, and a piece of leather used in the box construction was cut from a belt owned by someone with a large stomach, like Masaryk, because he had a beer belly. And, in 2007, after police searched and bugged his house, they listened in on a phone call between him and an old old friend from Ecking, where they discussed the statute of limitations for Ursula Herman's case. So they were like, we're almost there, bro. Probably not so like that. So did they but... try their friend, his friend? Um, I think, I think. Or did they, they like, at least look into? I think th- they definitely looked into it. Um, Wait, why is his current wife being tried as an accessory if he wasn't married to her at that time? He was married to her at that time. I thought you said that she would divorce him soon after that. No, he had a wife before the current wife. The one that's being held on trial. Oh. She divorced him after he put the dog in the freezer. Oh, okay. Okay. Because, duh. <laughs> you go down to get some ground beef out of your freezer and you find your dog. I lose my mind. Um, they might find you in a fucking box, dude. I don't know. <laughs> For real. So, okay. But, okay. The key elements of the prosecutor's case were revoked confessions by Fallinger. Uh, the one that he had dug the hole at Mazurk's request, and the tape recorder. So there was those were their main pieces of evidence. They insisted that the confession was credible, as the old police file showed Fallenfer- Fall- oh my God. Fafinger's confession was accurate in several ways. He described the burial site in detail from the size of the forest glade and the dimensions of the hole to the soil conditions. The lead police investigator in 1982 was convinced that Balfinger deliberately misled him during the forest visit when he could not locate where the box was buried. Testifying in court all these years later, the same policeman described Falfinger as an excellent actor and practiced swindler. The the guy that led him through the forest? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if he can describe all of that stuff and not take you to the right place, he's lying about one of them, and it's probably not the description. Yeah. So, the tape recorder was obviously the most important and the most controversial, according to the records. When questioned by the police in 2007, Masaryk said that he had purchased it only a few weeks earlier at a flea market while on a short holiday with his wife. But he could not prove who sold it to him, and nobody at the market could recall such a device being on sale that day. The state's expert, whose specialty was phonetics rather than audio, described how in the recording of the ransom calls, you could hear a couple of clicking sounds, the buttons of a tape recorder being pressed during the recordings of the jingle. When she... Oh no. Ah. 
I Wait, so he down. planned to play the jingle? Yeah, he planned that. Why did he choose that jingle? That was my question. I was like, why that jingle specifically? Like, I get you're using the well, jingle to get them to talk to you so you don't have to talk, but, like, why the radio jingle? This very I mean, specific I don't jingle. get it in general, honestly. I don't get it. So, okay, so when she pressed the, bus- the buttons on the tape machine, she had, in her words, an aha moment. The sounds were identical to what she heard and what was presented in front of her. Mm-hmm. So... Other subtle characteristics of the recording also corresponded corresponded precisely to the specific machine in front of her. It was, as she said, probable that the very same tape recorder found in Masaryk's house was used in the ransom calls. So, summing up, in March 2010, the senior prosecutor reminded the court that Ursula had been buried alive in a box, revealed the cold-bloodedness and mercilessness of the perpetrators. The three judges and two jurors were convinced finding Masaryk guilty and sentencing him to life imprisonment. His wife was acquitted due to lack of evidence. In court, everyone seemed happy that Ursula's killer had finally been put away. Everyone that is except for one person. Can you take a guess who? Uh, Mikhail. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful... <laughs> Would you like me to get into that? Because I also have that, but um, it's already been pretty yeah, long. Yeah, that's why you put it down, isn't it? Yeah, but I didn't. I mean, it was a really long case, so I just wanted to make sure. So, okay. So, Mikhail. At the start of the trial, few people in court had taken had taken much notice of 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 Mr. Herman, despite his de- his distinctive appearance. He wears he he has gray hair and a ponytail, and at the time also sported thin sideburns down to his jaw. He was unassuming, not the kind of guy who would draw attention to himself. After graduating from high school, he studied teaching in Augsburg and then opened a music store selling instruments, equipment, including tape recorders. He got married, had three children, and fostered a fourth. He loved watching them grow up, seeing them share his love of music, finding their own way in life. So he's a good dad. Wait, which one was this? This is uh, Michael Herman, Mikhail. Oh, okay. Mikhail. So people who knew what happened to Ursula sometimes asked if it made Michael anxious about his own kids, but for some reason it didn't. Nor did he ever think about looking for the perpetrators himself. That was the job of the police, according to him. I thought he was the one that was like... Like he was looking into it by himself quietly. Mm-hmm. He was. Like, he was constantly tracking it. But he didn't, like, make efforts. Okay. But, obviously, he didn't mention that. Um, So, though he felt at peace in his life, his sister's death to him still felt like an unclosed circle. The trial uh, and his status as co-plaintiff offered an opportunity to close it. While most Nebenklager are passive observers in court, Michael decided to take his role way more seriously. He would not allow the family to be victims a second a time. A second time. So, before the trial even started, to the surprise of the state-assigned lawyer, Michael had requested full access to the case files, which ran to tens of thousands of scanned pages. Jesus. In the first few weeks of the trial, he got through 6,000 pages, locking himself in the study at home at night, unable to stop reading. His memories of Ursula were strong. He recalled how, despite her liveliness, she was also cautious and at times sensitive, growing upset when some of her schoolmates repeatedly misbehaved. But reading through the typewritten police reports, he realized that he had forgotten many of the details of the horrifying days of September 1981, even the fact that he had helped Ursula with her piano practice just a few hours before she was kidnapped. It was, he felt like, he felt like his brain had somehow blanked out that part of his life. To Michael, there was a much, there was much to suggest Masaryk might have committed the crime, but there were also things that troubled him about the prosecution case. He couldn't understand why Falfinger revoked his confession. He probably had more to do with it than just digging a hole. Yeah. 
and he didn't understand why it was dismissed all those years before. So from the police files, it was clear that Fallfinger had a serious alcohol problem, which he learned about in those files. Uh, while in detention, he claimed to have experienced hallucinations. Falfinger did. Mm-hmm. He was also chronically work shy. Questioned in 2008, his former wife called him a lazy guy who never would have never have agreed to dig a large hole. <laughs> uh, as the court heard, Falfinger's confession was not even signed. The investigator wrote it down from memories weeks later. Oh. And, as with Masaryk, there was no DNA proof connecting Falfinger to the crime. Before the trial, the police exhumed Falfinger's body, but there was no match to the genetic profiles they had discovered among the evidence a few years later. Most concerning to Michael was the tape recorder. With his background in music, he knew a lot about acoustics and sound engineering, and could not understand how a tape recorder could be definitively linked to the ransom calls all those years ago. Even if the reel-to-reel device had been used to record the jingle from a radio, as the prosecutors believed, the kidnappers still would have had to transfer that recording to a second, more portable device. Since the calls to the Herman house were made from payphones. The acoustic environments in the booth and at the kidnappers' home would have also influenced what the police eventually heard and recorded at the other end of the phone line. So Michael's lawyer advised him not to make a big deal out of it, saying, you don't do this as a Nebenkaga. I did not think about habits. I just did what I thought was right, as Michael said. Mm -hmm. He wrote a letter to the court calling the sounds expert report about the tape recorder incomplete or one-sided. The judges were not happy, but by law, they were obligated to read out the letter in court. It was a highly unusual intervention, and a member of the prosecution team, the victim's brother no less, acting in favor of the defense. That was strange. When the verdict against Masaryk was announced, Michael made a statement at the courthouse, I am not convinced of his guilt, but neither am I convinced of his innocence. Instead of the circle being closed, it had opened further. Six months after the trial, in late 2010, Michael began to notice a strange high-frequency noise in his left ear. At night, the hissing would wake him up and prevent him from falling back to back asleep. Even worse, it, oft- it often tormented him during the day, especially when he was trying to teach music. He had never experienced tinnitus before and thought that it might be related to the trial. Don't know how he got from point A to point B. The court-appointed psychologist on hand to assist relatives of crime victims examined him and agreed that the stress of the court case was indeed the likely cause. During the trial, Masaryk had sent Michael a letter, not to thank him for questioning the tape recorder evidence, but to suggest that they were somehow on the same side. Mm. From prison, Masaryk kept writing and even sent a Christmas card. In 2013, Michael finally replied, I was so surprised to receive letters from you because it is certainly clear that you, because it is certainly clear to you that despite all the doubts I have about your guilt, I have considerable reservations about your person. If you are not the culprit, I wish for more new insights and that you can be rehabilitated. Rehabilitated. If you are the culprit, go to hell. By then, Michael was increasingly skeptical that Masaryk was guilty. After the trial ended, Michael kept returning night after night, his ear ringing to the case files, which he had stored on his computer, meticulously arranging the evidence in folders. It had put a strain on his marriage, and he ended up separating from his wife in 2012. Um, But he still couldn't let go of the case. He felt he owed it to his parents, to himself, and even to the German public to pursue the truth. What drives me is ethics, doing what is morally right, he claims. It was just wrong for the case to end like it did. So he came up with a plan. In 2013, he filed a civil claim seeking 20,000 euros in damages from Masaryk for causing his tinnitus. It was a legal ruse since Masaryk would defend the case on the basis that he was wrongfully convicted, so he could not be considered responsible. Mm -hmm. Uh, The court would have had to reconsider the facts of the criminal trial before coming to a conclusion. It would be an opportunity, Michael believed, to get closer to the truth. 
The judges knew what was going on and they were pissed. Joachim Feller, who had been Michael's lawyer since 2012, claimed when met at his offices in Landsberg am Lake, an ancient town about 20 minutes drive from Ecking. The lawyer continued to say they tried several times to stop it going forward. The court insisted that an independent psychiatrist examine Michael and to rule on whether his tinnitus was actually caused by the trial. After the psychiatrist confirmed that it was, the case finally went ahead in 2016. It dragged on for more than two years. Unlike the criminal case, when the media focus was on Masaryk, it was now on Michael. He found himself having to explain to his pupils in his music and religious classes who knew him as a reserved, kind teacher why they were seeing his face on the newspapers and on TV. He took journalists to Ecking and into the forest where Ursula was kidnapped. Even so, apart from Harriman's close family and friends, few understood why he was still pursuing the case. A local journalist who covered the criminal and civil cases claimed that the newsroom colleagues often asked why Herman could not just let go. That was his sister. Yeah. As the civil trial went on, it became clear that he was not the only person with doubts about the original verdict. Appearing for the defense was a retired physicist, an amateur sound expert named Bernd Heide, who had built his first tape recording from scratch in the 1960s and lived in a village just a few miles from Ecking. He, vivi- he claimed to vividly remember the coverage of the crime in 1981, though he had never heard of Masaryk before his arrest. Heider had followed the 2009 trial in the media and, like Michael, was highly skeptical about the tape recorder device. Later, he had borrowed a similar machine, got a hold of one of the ransom calls recordings. Um, no clue how that happened, because I couldn't find on how the heck he got his hands on that. Uh, and tried to see if it was possible to replicate the phonetic expert's findings. After a year of testing, he concluded that it was not, and offered his assistant to Masaryk's lawyer. Towards the end of the civil case, Michael gained another ally. In London, a German academic named Barbara Zipser read an article online about his efforts to get the truth. Zipser was a child in Germany when Ursula was kidnapped and recalled the horror she felt then. In terms of its impact, it was the German equivalent of the Madeleine McCain case, or the Mm -hmm. Boy in the Box case. Zipser told reporters uh, that, I thought, whoever did this, I want that person in jail. Since Zipser's specialty is linguistic profiling at Royal Hollow University of London, she uses modern profiling techniques to identify authors of ancient Greek medical texts. She decided to compare the ransom note sent by the kidnappers to samples of Masaryk's writing, which Hyder had posted on the internet. Zipser analyzed the words used in the writing style and the grammar and all that. So whoever composed the ransom notes was well-educated, she said. A native speaker pretending to be a foreigner by writing in broken German. She was convinced that it was not Masaryk who made the letter. Interesting. Her opinion only hardened after she went to meet Michael in Germany and spent many hours going through the case files with him. I know this is an incredible story, but I've seen the evidence, and Michael has done a very good investigative work, she told. I support him and his findings. For a few years after the criminal trial, Michael thought that there was a 50% chance that Masaryk was the kidnapper. Now he puts it at 1%. In August 2018, the civil case concluded and the court ordered Masaryk to pay Michael 7,000 euros for causing his tinnitus. It was a victory that to Michael represented a loss, since to arrive at that decision, the judges first needed to agree with the criminal court's that Masaryk, together with an unidentified accomplice, was indeed the man who kidnapped Ursula. In an open letter to the Bavarian state and the media, Michael wrote, My sister's fate has stayed with me for 37 years, and to this day it is unclear who was actually responsible for her death. Could it be the Augsburg legal system is not actually interested in solving the case of Ursula Hermann, the death of my little sister? If the court decides to close this this proverbial lid, it should be well aware that it, one cannot shut the truth away. And that is 
the end. So, yeah, I kind of agree with him. It sounds like the court just didn't want another cold case in there. Yeah, that's what I figured at the end of it, too. It Honestly, to me, it just sounded like the court was tired of dealing with it. There were still so many questions, and people still wanted to know what happened, yeah, and this was an easy way to end Yeah, that definitely, like, in, like, using a tape recorder as sole evidence to put someone on trial, that definitely... It honestly it just felt that, like it was, like, the sound. circumstances happened to line up, and they were like, we're gonna put it on you. Yeah, it's like, they're like, this is the only guy we can ever think of. No one likes him enough to defend him. Yeah. Let's do There was it. enough to back it. They literally just needed the two things, and he was convicted, and... Yeah. It was up to Mikhail to try and find something about it, but it still didn't but, work out for him. I mean, so, fuck that guy for freezing the dog, but, like... For freezing the dog and putting think the little did. girl in a box. I don't think he did put the girl in the box. <laughs> fuck whoever it, it actually was that put her in the box. But yeah, it just doesn't for freezing sound the like dog, it. But... Yeah. I mean, he should be in prison because of the dog, so... But, like, I don't know. I'm not... I'm, I'm with Michael. I'm not convinced that it, he was the one who killed Ursula. Herman, yeah. Which makes it still a cold case. Unofficially cold. Unofficially cold. So, yeah. It's pretty heavy. It, there's it, There was so much involved in it. Only to reach a rather unsatisfying end. But yeah, the kidnapping yeah. of Ursula Hermann, the Germany's girl in the box. Um, so, now it's your turn. What um, you got for me? I did three cryptids. Three. Yes, but they're all pretty short. Okay, I'm here for it. Because there's like, they're like ancient, not ancient, but like they're like, it's like folklore and stuff that doesn't really have any like encounters with it. But I thought they were still pretty interesting. I'm here for it. Educate me. So, in Belgium, there is a monstrous creature that makes its home in the Meuse River, and it likes to swim back and forth through the Ardennes. It is called the Mawat. Mawat? Mm-hmm. That's a cute name. It is a... Lizard-like amphibious creature. It's about the size of a calf, and it runs back and forth on the bottom of the river. It's the size of a cat, like a baby cow. Yeah, that's a big ass lizard. Yeah, and uh, it's it's known both in France and Belgium because the Meuse River is um basically like a part of the border. Its primary purpose is. Like, in that story was to keep children away from the water. It's considered an aquatic bogey cryptid, and it won't hesitate to pull in and devour any child foolish enough to play too close to the water. Mm, it's a children eater. However, it very rarely actually leaves the water, and when it does, if you see it on land, it's believed to be a bad omen. Uh, presaging death, war, or pestilence. Actually, the last time it's said to have been seen was before the French Revolution. Huh, that's convenient timing. Or I think it was, like, right after. No. Pretty sure it was the French Revolution. Angry mothers would tell the, like, story to their kids. Um, is that... Like, if the Mawak was getting onto land, they would say, here's the Mawak. If you don't shut up right now, I'll have you eaten. <laughs> Which is what mothers used to tell their kids. <laughs> um, apparently, the phrase was very effective. Uh, yeah, reasonable. However, related to the Mawak is the Carnabo. The Carnabo. Which resides in the exact same region. And he is, like, a more hyper-localized cryptid, so he's not really known that well, except for, like, in that small area. Mm -hmm. uh, the Carnabo is said to be the offspring of a demon, ghoul, demon or ghoul. It's kind of like, it, demon it slash ghoul. differs. Yeah. And a traveling bohemian or a sorcerer. A sorcerer. Can it cast magic? Yeah. <gasps> Yeah, it can. Um, oh my gosh. So the Carnivo, he stands taller than a man, and he has the face of a human, 
but he has an elephant trunk and the eyes of a basilisk. (laughs) Which are basically like snake eyes. Yeah. I'm thinking basilisk, and I'm thinking of the Harry Potter big snake that's hanging out in the Chamber of Secrets. That... (laughs) An elephant trunk. That's just a funny image in my head. Is it like a big trunk from like the artist's interpretations, or is it like a It's like an elephant trunk. Its breath is also said to paralyze grown adults, and it can kill animals with just its breath. Its father, uh, the sorcerer, is said to have given some of his power to its son, the carnivo, to cast spells. And on Good Fridays, the carnivo can cure Whitlow, which is an an infection that usually occurs on the tip of the fingers. And it said that it works um, healing powers on the Good Fridays for that. Good Friday is the only day that it decides to be a healer? Yeah. That sounds um, like a D&D character. Well, I mean, that's the only day that it can do that. Oh. The, the Carnival stories were popularly told as Winter Night's Tales. Uh, so, like, you know, sit around the fire, tell them the tale of the Carnival. The, the carnivo isn't really said to be violent toward humans in most stories, but it is known to render those who pass close to its lair unconscious, and it can kill animals with a whistle from its trunk or it'll cast spells on people. However, since it is the offspring of a demon, it does tend to commit a lot of evil deeds. Uh, well, there are other sources that say that the carnival feeds on travelers who wander near its quarry, and that it likes being feared, and will always leave at least one person alive to tell others about what happened. (laughs) Sorry, I just imagined him, like, pointing at someone and being like, you tell my tale, and, like, sends them off back to the village. I mean, yeah, after he, like, you know, kills everything around it. He just, like, destroys all the animals, all the friends, and it's just like, you're the lucky one. Go tell my tale. Yeah. He's also known for taking hostages, and he likes to, like, use them as entertainment before setting them free so that they can also tell the tales of, like, the horrific things that they uh, had to do to entertain the creature. Man, he just really wants to be famous. He wants to be known. He wants to be feared. I mean, he's a demon slash sorcerer. What yeah. else do you want? <laughs> there is an account that the carnival used to actually reside in a commune um, in the Ardennes called uh, Regnives. I know I didn't say that right, but that's the best I can do. Uh, but now it's supposed to live in an abandoned quarry. And... Uh, there's really no real origins for the carnivo. It is theorized that it's to have originated from a long-lost, forgotten historical event. So for the sightings... Oh, okay. No, it was not the French Revolution. I have it down here. So the Mawa was last seen in July of 1870 at Revenant-Givet, in the lead-up to the French and Prussian War, in which France would be defeated and it would lose its territory. And then um, there's one story of the Carnival that goes, <laughs> he abducted, it's not funny, it's actually kind of disturbing. Uh. One story of the Carnival goes that it abducted a young girl Uh, who was to never be seen again. And it said that during thunderstorms, you can hear her moans of, like, you know, dread or whatever, and the trumpet of the creature from his trunk. That would be a horrifying thing to hear. Yeah. And remember, he can kill animals with his trunk. Yeah. With the whistle from his trunk. I would hate that. I would hate just be, like, you're out, like, chilling, I don't know, camping or some shit like that, and you just hear, like, the the sobbing moans of of, of a woman just, Mm -hmm. like, in despair, followed by an elephant trumpet. Yeah. That would be so off-putting. Yeah, it sounds pretty terrifying to me, so, and, like, pictures of them, 
He actually looks like kind of scary. Um, and the third uh, cryptid that I found is called the Roshard. Have you heard of this one? I've heard the name. I haven't done any research personally into it. Okay, so the Roshard's name is actually attributed to a call he makes, which is Rose, Rose, Rose. Uh, it The name has, like, several different uh, possible origins, but that's, like, mainly where people think it came from. Uh, the name may also be derived from the Scandinavian word rusk, which means to rush at, and um, the Anglo-Saxon briozen, which means to terrify, or the Dutch rosen, which means making a din. Um, it could also just be another variant of an oshard, which is a shape-shifting bogey. Uh, and the Oshard was derived from, there's the Ors, Horse, or Mount, and Hard, Strong. Um, so, the origin of the Roshard is that in 1874, or the 1874 Almanac of Blackenburg tells the story of a dreadful storm that happened in 1791. The storm destroyed a hut of a suspected witch on the beach, and the inhabitants were so overjoyed about this, destru this destruction of the hut that they started smashing what was left of it. And while they were doing that, over the dunes they heard a spine-chilling sound uh, ringing over them, which was the Roshard going, Rose, Rose, Rose. They destroyed... The Roshard's hut? Or the witch's hut? The witch's hut. The witch's hut. Yeah. A huge black dog with bells around its neck came running down the dunes and started chasing the villagers. Um, and that dog was Roshard. Roshard is a shapeshifter, and he uses that to perform really horrible pranks on people. There's literally no form, there's no limit to the forms that he can take. Uh, sometimes he turns to a fish and allows himself to be caught so that he can destroy the net. Or while he's a fish, he'll get caught and get in the boat and tip the boat over. Sometimes he pounces on people's backs and rides them to exhaustion. And sometimes he even changes to the form of a baby and allows people to take him into their home before laughing wickedly and escaping from their homes, calling out Rose, Rose, Rose behind him. Blackenburg is a sailing community, uh, so the sailors of that place found a way to sort of escape Rochard's attention. So they would give themselves a second baptism in a brand new name which would break Rochard's power over them, which he has power over you if he knows your true name. And the ceremony would be undertaken by new sailors involved. They would be splashed with salt water, and they would follow this saying, which was, I baptize you in May Rochard, the thrice ugly one, turn away. Turn, 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 your name is, and then they would, you know, give them their new name. Whenever that would happen, Rochard would come to claim someone, and he would say their name, and they would simply just tell him that they were not the person he was looking for. And then he would leave. <laughs> he would just be like, oh, okay. yeah," And then turn around and walk away and just be like, well. Basically. Darn. And uh, ever since then, Rochard's power have, has been in rapid decline. Yeah, that was those were all three of my cryptids. I just thought they were pretty. I thought they were pretty interesting. I they, they were fun. interesting. The Rosenstard one gets me. He rides people. That makes me think of the the jockeys from Left for Dead. They like jump yeah. on you and ride you around. You have to like bite them. I'm just imagining that, but with like him screaming "Rose, Rose, Rose" while he does it. Yeah, I mean the, the true name thing also makes me think of like Fey legends because that's usually in a lot of so, Fey legends. It's like you have they you have like a true name. 
And if the fairies can find out what that is, they have full control over you. Well, so the thing with um, interesting intersection there. a lot of folklore from these areas is that they're really pagan-based because that's really what a lot of their cultures were before all of the wonderful wars and territory things mm-hmm. and such. So a lot of the folklore originated through those traditions, I which like all honestly those. all of Europe basically yeah, came from much. pagan traditions. So yeah, pretty much. So a lot of American cryptids and folklore is actually most of them derive from Native American. Yeah, except for like newer age with like creepy pastas and stuff like that. But like the old the OG ones, like the Pugwudgie, like last yeah last week, that one. A lot of them derive from that. Well, again, Native Americans were the first people here. Yeah, they've been around a hell of a lot longer. Just like the pagans were one of the first people in Europe. I love that, though. I'm here for that. I'd always seen that name, and I'd seen, like, the references to Rose, 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 but I never understood it, and I was like, I'll learn about that at a later date. And here we are. Yeah, that one's, like, it's a little more popular, but, like, it's not something where people are like, oh, I just saw the Rose Shard. It's more like a... You know, like a little campfire story or something. I would hate to encounter the other two, though. One, because it's a big-ass lizard. Fuck lizards. And the second one, just because that would be extremely unsettling. It's supposed to be, like, eight feet tall. Eight feet tall? Yeah. Hell no. Uh It's taller than a man. (laughs) Average man is, like, six feet tall. Ugh. I wouldn't. Yeah. I was about to to say I wouldn't survive that. No, I probably wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah. But... Yeah. I'm into those cryptids. I like those. I yeah, like but they're that. pretty cool. But they are pretty fun. cool. When I was trying to find one last week and then with R.I.P. Robbie Coltrane, I was mm-hmm. like, like, there was just like none that really caught my attention. But I'm into those. Nice job. You're a lot better Thanks. than me. <laughs> well, so it took know. a long time to like find them, so. Yeah, that's fair. A lot of them have been lost to you know, war, crusade, blah, 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 as, as for mentioned. Yeah. Love that. But? But, um, Europe isn't really, I don't think Europe is huge on the, uh, like, the New Age cryptids like we are, but mm. that kind of makes sense considering the geography that we all live in, because the U.S. is extremely, like, vast, and there's a ton of inhabited areas of the U.S., yeah, and all of those uh, just throughout the U.S. I mean, we're called the the melting pot for a reason. There's so many different yeah. cultures and different legends that followed over here. So, yeah, that's fair. But yeah, but yeah, okay. <laughs> just keep repeating that over and over again. But yeah, but yeah. So <laughs> correct. <laughs> So, that was this week's episode, I guess. Should we yep. wrap it up? Anything yeah, Anything else we so. want to mention? Um, no. Uh, follow, share, rate the podcast. We're biggest on Spotify. The more people listen to it, the more platforms we can get on. Uh, like, share. I would say subscribe, but we don't have a YouTube. I guess you can subscribe to Follow. Follow. Yeah, Anyways. no, you follow that. Um... Apple, like, I think Apple is the one that you like, or iTunes is the one that you can subscribe to, but I haven't set that up because we don't have any special content that you need to pay for right now. (laughs) But you can follow on Spotify and Twitter and Instagram. Go check us out there, and especially, depending, it doesn't matter what platform you're listening on, please like, please rate. The Much fuck is Reich? Reich, like I was trying to say Reich, <laughs> and then like popped into my head, and they just smushed together. We love that. Um, social medias will be in the description again. Um, yeah. go check us out. Um, that's about it. Yeah. Well, this has been Criminal Slash Cryptid. Bye. Bye.